friends, it's me, Amelia Robinson from Dayton.com, and I hope you are all staying safe this holiday season. This episode of the What Had Happened Was podcast is brought to you as a special service of the Dayton Daily News. Like and rate this show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google, iHeartRadio, or wherever else you find your favorite shows. Now here is Dayton Daily News Community Conversation, what you need to know about the vaccines. Our editor-in-chief, Jim Babington, kicked things off. Tonight, our community impact editor, Amelia Robinson, is hosting a discussion on the topic of the week and the season, what you need to know about the coronavirus vaccine. This week, doses of the vaccine to combat COVID-19 are being distributed in Ohio and around the country. More versions of the vaccine are expected to be approved soon by the FDA. The vaccines were developed in near record time to combat a disease which first came to public light almost exactly one year ago. Tonight, we have a panel of experts to discuss the vaccines, how the rollout will happen, and what people should know. Joining Amelia tonight is a Dayton Daily News reporter, Jordan Laird. And on our panel tonight is Vicki Nicely-Henry, Health Director for Miami County Public Health, Dr. Robert W. Frank, Jr., Director of the Center for Vaccine Research, Cincinnati Children's Hospital and Immunization Director, Ohio AAP, Dr. Thomas Hurt, Family Practice Physician with PrimeMed Centerville, Dr. Mamli Anim, the Chief Medical Officer for Five Rivers Health Centers, and Cheryl Harris-Wynn, the Green County Public Health Accreditation Coordinator, Planning Chief for the Pandemic Response, and Vaccination Planning Team Leader. Thank you to all of our panelists for joining us tonight. There's a lot of questions that people have about the vaccines and how they will be administered and how effective they are. And hopefully we'll get to as many questions as we can this evening. Jordan Laird is working on continuing stories about this subject. So she'll be able to follow up on some of those questions and stories too, if you don't get your question answered tonight. The first thing that's probably on a lot of people's mind is how this is going so far. I think it's really starting off well. I think one people have to understand is that the FDA giving the emergency use authorization, the EUA, gave permission to be able to start using the vaccine, but you still have to get it distributed. And so that's going to be a big task to getting it around. The other thing is that people have to understand is that initially our demand is going to exceed our supply, but I think that's going to be a a short-lived thing is short-lived to me. I, I say three to four months. We've lived with this for a year, so hopefully another couple of months uh, we can get through and be okay. Jordan, from your perspective as a reporter covering this story, how is it going? What are people saying? Hospitals and our health departments don't know a lot beyond what's going to happen with the initial shipments. So only the first few shipments for December, have has there really been any information given to our health departments and our hospitals? And beyond that, we don't know. Ohio is expecting about 660,000 doses of Pfizer and Moderna this month and 660,000 doses next month. But beyond next week's shipments, they're still working out exact details on how many doses are going to go where. It's going to generally work. We've said in our coverage that Elderly folks and then medical folks will be the first to sort of get the vaccine. But then after that, how would it be rolled out to the general public? Vicki, do you have any insight on that at all? As far as how it's going to be rolled out to the general public, that's going to depend on the supply. I know we've kind of had some experience with this kind of vaccination process with H1N1. We 
hold flu clinics. I mean, they're not to this magnitude, but so there are plans in place for situations like this, you know, mass vaccination. We have exercises, you know, practice mock exercises that we do to kind of help us prepare for this. The foundation for the process is there. It's just a matter of the supply. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that people have to realize with this technology, one of the great things about this technology that we're using with the mRNA vaccines and also the adenovirus vaccines, both of these technologies allow us to create a lot of doses very quickly. Um, So Pfizer and Moderna are both saying that they can produce about 1 billion doses of vaccine by this time next year. AstraZeneca and Janssen have been saying similar kind of numbers. So that's why I'm saying in the next few months, I think there'll still be these demand will outstrip the supply, but I think that'll be pretty quickly relieved. The one of the things too is that people have been worried about this ultra cold chain and it's pardoned with the media, but it's a little bit more of a media hype than it really is a real problem. We have a lot of minus 70 freezers in the United States. So in the United States, it's not going to be a big deal. There's going to be places in in developing world that would be a big deal if you had to have it at minus 70. But I think that we'll be able to do fine with that. There's also some data now suggests that the vaccine is stable. The Pfizer vaccine is stable at a lower temperature, even refrigerator temperature for up to a week, so that there are things that I think are going to make things easier as we get on And, you know, so moving from phase one to phase two to phase three, probably is going to be over a few months. And I would look at it just like uh, Vicky was saying, is that this is going to be like getting people to come in and get the flu shot, that that the doctor's offices, health departments are very uh, used to giving lots of vaccines quickly, is that we have our big flu um, clinics every year. And so I think this is instead of flu, we're going to be giving COVID-19 vaccines. That brings us to like probably the number one question I have been asked to ask you all, and I'm sure Jordan probably would agree. How confident are you that this is safe? Normally, a vaccine takes you know two years or so to develop. You talked about like the flu vaccine, and we have other vaccines like polio vaccine, all those things that took years and years to develop. But this came about in less than a year. How confident are you guys, as our local experts, that this is something that people should trust, Dr. Hurt? Sure, I'm, I'm pretty confident. I'm confident. Um, I would have I would have lined up today to get it if I could have gotten it myself today. Not quite available just yet. Yeah, it's interesting because these will be the these are the first mRNA vaccines that are licensed, but the technology's been there since around 1990. So it's something we've been working on for 30 years, trying to get a delivery system that you could make a vaccine like this. You know, vaccines have been around for hundreds of years, really. If you go back to the smallpox and They're generally safe and effective. No vaccine, no medical treatment is 100% effective, but they've been studied rigorously. The FDA would not have given the emergency use authorization if they didn't feel confident it would be safe to start distributing. I I echo that as well. I think it's a very safe vaccine. The process was sped up because, again, we were in an emergency situation. So I think steps that could have taken months, weeks, sped up. But I don't think that they compromise safety because I think safety is the primal goal of this, to get people better, to prevent disease. And so I believe that it's a very safe vaccine. And we're really fortunate that the companies really all kind of went straight to this problem and tackled it and were able to produce something. And I think, you know, over 40,000 for the Pfizer vaccine, over 30,000 for the Moderna vaccine, if we had more time, they may have done 100,000 people. So I think that's the biggest thing in that they didn't, have as many people that they would have maybe in the past, but they definitely had enough to be able to determine safety and efficacy. 
Yeah, I mean, actually, Dr. Anim, what I would say is that these are huge. These trials are huge. Um, they're actually much bigger than most of the time when we're doing a phase three trial and that they were powered to be able to give us enough outcomes. 30,000 people, most of the time we're looking more like eight to 10,000 people that are in a, in a phase three trial. So I think people should feel comfortable about the safety. I mean, we've been doing the clinical trials here since March and that a number of people actually get no symptoms at all. And if they're going to get symptoms, the common things we've been seeing is uh, headache and fatigue that's lasting maybe a day or two. Typically, if people are going to have any adverse events or side effects, they start about day two, sometimes day one, but day two. And if they haven't had them by day three, we really haven't seen people have the side effects. After the headache, fatigue, the other things that some people have had is had some muscle aches, some joint aches. Some people have had chills. Some people have had fever. Some people in that range is like less than 10%, more like about 7 to 8% of people had some fever. All these symptoms have been a day or two in duration and then gone away. None of the people that we've enrolled have missed work to my knowledge and that no one has had anything serious that is need hospitalization or anything like that. And so I would echo the other panelists a lot as far as that while these vaccines did come to market quickly, we didn't cut any corners we did all the same things. What happened as far as that we just put a tremendous amount of person power to these uh, vaccine testing programs. And so that where the, the FDA was working weekends, uh, they were working seven days a week to be reviewing data almost in real time. And that's one of the things that allowed them to be able to make the EUA determination so quickly is that usually we spend a year or two whatever, collecting data, and then we send it to the FDA. And then the FDA would maybe take two or three months to go looking through their data but here they were looking at it on a daily basis as we were sending it to them on a daily basis. So that's where we were able to condense time. It, but it didn't cut any corners. So that's people really have to be understanding and believing we didn't cut corners. Dr. Hurd, you guys led the local arm of the vaccine trials. Can you tell us anything about how that worked or what you learned from that? Sure. I, I think I can tell you a little. <laughs> Our group, uh, we were mostly primary care, family practice, and pediatrics. And so we've had a research arm for about the last 10 years participating in some drug studies and some vaccine studies. And so we actually had recruited some of our patients to be in the Pfizer vaccine trial. I don't have the exact number, but it was around 300 patients participated in the trial, which is pretty good for just uh, our, our date and site. As, that's as, great. Yeah. It's about you know, 40,000 people, 300 in Dayton. That's, that's pretty good. I know, I'm trying to think, I think five or six of my patients were, were in the trial and I tried to ask them some, obviously it's double blinded. So I don't know if they got the placebo or got the, the real vaccine, but yeah, I, I do not have any reports of any significant adverse events. One thing we always say after a vaccine and talk about the different side effects, after effects that people have, that actually usually is a good thing. It means your immune system's uh, recognizing the foreign body and and making antibodies, generating an immune response to it. So if you do have a little fever, a little headache, sore arm, I know it sounds cheesy, but that's actually a good thing. That means it's working. 300 people, that's pretty good. No significant adverse events that I am aware of. We do have a question, a couple questions actually from Facebook. I'm going to ask one of them. And if you guys have questions that you want me to pose to our panelists, please feel free to put them in the comments and our director, Kelly, will get those to us to ask our panelists. The first one is from Barbara Ball, and she wants to know, can people in nursing homes refuse vaccines, or can anybody refuse vaccines, just to take it out a little bit further? I mean, this is still America, <laughs> and so I think anybody can refuse a vaccine. Pretty much before you get a vaccine, you sign for the consent to receive the vaccine, so if you do not want the vaccine, the vaccine cannot be 
given to you? That's really the simple question. And maybe people in the health department can join in. The vaccine is available only for those who would like to receive it. The hope is that enough people will want to receive it and go ahead and receive it that we do achieve herd immunity over time. So it is definitely not mandated for anyone to accept the vaccine, but we're making it available for those who would like to have it. If I could just jump in to, I've spoken with some of our local hospitals and none of the ones I've spoken with, including Premier and Kettering, are making it a requirement for their employees. I talked to the Ohio Healthcare Association CEO, which is a big representative of nursing homes and other congregate living facilities, and they are not going to require it of workers or residents. That's not something they could do or are going to do. I think having said that, it's highly encouraged because you're getting the vaccine is even uh, with slight side effects that you may get is a lot, lot better than getting the COVID-19. Yes, you can refuse it, but it's something to really give serious thoughts to getting the disease versus a a couple of days of discomfort um, and protecting yourself and protecting people around you and eventually helping us fight this pandemic. I'd like to just remind everybody what you're watching. This is a Dayton Daily News community conversation on what you need to know about the coronavirus vaccine. I'm Dayton Daily News Editor Jim Bevington, and together with Community Impact Editor Amelia Robinson and reporter Jordan Laird, we are speaking with Vicki Nisley-Henry with Miami County Public Health, Dr. Robert Frank with Cincinnati Children's Hospital, Dr. Thomas Hurt with PrimeMed Physicians of Centerville, Dr. Mamley Anim, Chief Medical Officer for Five Rivers Health Centers, and Cheryl Harris-Wynn, Green County Public Health Accreditation Coordinator. Dr. Frank, please, I'm sorry, I think I cut you off. Oh, no, no, that's fine. Um, One of the things I was just going to mention as far as, you know, Cheryl mentioned the topic of herd immunity, and, and I think that's one of the things that people have to understand is that there's two ways that our population can get immunity. One is that you get the natural infection, and two is you get the vaccine. And so a lot of people say, I'm just going to get the natural infection. It's not a big deal. It's a, but if you look at the, still the overall mortality rate is somewhere around 3%. And so with 400 million people in the United States, 3% is 12 million people. I don't think that's the way we want to get herd immunity. And that's why the vaccine is so important. And while they're not going to be requiring people to get the vaccine to, to go to the work, that the way that we're going to get rid of this pandemic is to be having people vaccinated. It's really going to be important. I mean, you know, using your masks and stuff like that, which I got mine right over here as far as that uh, works, but people get tired of using those. They get tired of being distanced. They get tired of saying they can't hug somebody. They get tired of saying they can't go to a restaurant. They get tired of saying they can't go to a movie. They get tired of saying they can't have go to church. And that's why we want to have this vaccine in everybody so that we can have life go back to normal. So reader Anna Carlson asks a very related question. If you're an older person, but you don't live in a nursing home, where do you go to get in line? How soon can you expect it? And how is it going to work for those folks? I tell people all day, this is an unsatisfactory answer, but it depends, right? It depends on how many people take the vaccine in the first wave. It depends on how quick vaccine can be rolled out and shipped and distributed. So we don't know yet when offices are going to get it, when community health centers are going to have it to be able to start giving it out. But in the coming months, we'll know more and more. I know that's that's kind of an unsatisfactory answer. It depends. We don't know. <laughs> But having said that, the Ohio Department of Health has laid the ground and has contacted offices, doctor's offices and facilities have uh, signed up and have done all the uh, paperwork necessary to be vaccine sites. So 
we're getting ready to be able to give it to the community. And I you know we know about the first stage and I know they're still working on who's number two, number three. I think at this time, we just focus on doing what we can do and getting ready to do the next step. Ho- whoever that is, good that you want it because hopefully you, it'll come to you. This is probably a question actually that was sent in from one of our readers, Deborah Parrott. We've been throwing around words like effective. And obviously, you know, I think I know what effective means, but kind of complicated when you say one vaccine is 95% effective, the other is 92% effective. Can you guys explain effective in a way that people might be able to understand a little bit more? If you look at the Pfizer vaccine, when they put in for their application, there were 170 cases of COVID that happened among the participants in the trial. 162 of those cases happened in the placebo group and eight happened in the vaccine group. That's where the 95% is that almost every case that happened happened in the placebo group. Of the 10 severe cases they had, nine happened in the placebo group, one in the vaccine group. Moderna's results have been very similar. And AstraZeneca actually, while it's the number is different, by statistical analysis that their 70% they're reporting actually may be equivalent to the numbers that uh, Moderna and Pfizer are reporting. So I would take away from all these to say the data that we have for the three vaccines so far all have shown very good effectiveness. But that's what we're doing is you're looking at how many cases that you would expect in the placebo if no one got, so placebo means you had no intervention, and how many cases then happened in the vaccine group and you compare those two. It's like eight to 20 times higher in the placebo group than in the, in the vaccine group. And that's how you get that 95% efficacy. Just to dovetail on that, I believe it was 50-50 placebo recipients versus the active vaccine recipients. So that's, that's how you can, can do that. So half the people in the study didn't get right. the actual vaccine, half did. Another way to think of it, just to, to say it a different way, effective means, hey, if you get the vaccine and you're exposed, what is the chances that you won't get sick. And so we think that's around 95%. Now there's obviously a lot of variables. Someone coughs directly in your face. It's different than you're sitting near someone in a restaurant, right? But in general, if you have the vaccine, we think you have about a 95% chance that it was meaningful enough that you would not get sick if you got exposed to a sick person. And just to make this clear to folks, I've gotten a lot of questions. If I get the vaccine, can my life go back to normal immediately? No, that's an absolute no. So the efficacy is based on seven days after the second vaccine. And for at least, even if we were thinking, okay, we're the 95 out of the 100 that are going to have the, a good effect with the vaccine, there's still a slight chance that you aren't protected. But the other thing is that it's your, the protection doesn't start until seven days after the second vaccine. So you can't just get a shot in your arm and say, okay, I'm done with this and throw it in the garbage and go on. For a while, we're still going to be in masks. The other issue is you're not sure that getting the vaccine prevents you from transmitting it. You may not get sick, but could you still be carrying the virus and passing it on to other people? So again, this is why the herd immunity is very important. Until we get enough people who are not going to get sick, if you should pass it on. And I think this is something that the answers will come as we go on, as we vaccinate more people who will be able to figure out whether they can, they're still carrying an active virus that can actually cause infection. Again, we're all in this together for a while. Even if you're vaccinated, you're still going to have to not just think about yourself, but think about everybody else around you and make sure you're still wearing your mask and doing things safely until we have enough people who have been vaccinated. That's literally the number two question I think people have been asking. What does it actually mean once you get the vaccine? And to that point too, if you've already had COVID-19, do you still need to 
get the vaccine and how long will the vaccine actually be effective in your body to prevent you from getting an infection? So the, the first question, yes, if, if you've had the illness, you should still get the vaccination. We don't know yet because we haven't studied the vaccine long enough to know how long it's going to last and whether we're going to need a booster every year, every two years. I've seen stuff that suggests probably two years every two years, but that's certainly not set in stone yet. But there's some evidence that getting the vaccine actually protects you longer than having the illness itself, which is kind of interesting. That's sort of opposite of what you might think. You might think if you had the illness, you're protected longer, but that may not be the case. Getting the vaccine may protect you longer. Real quick, just obviously there's still stuff coming out, but the Pfizer vaccine is going to require two doses 21 days apart, or of course, three weeks apart. Moderna one's going to be 28 days apart. So you'll get the first one, get the second one later. That'll be a challenge to keep track of everybody, make sure that everyone's getting the second dose. There are some data too where people that have had known COVID and then they've been vaccinated is that their immune response still actually bumps up so that uh, your immune response in the studies we have so far, and there's been no data to suggest it increases your side effects. So that's why we wouldn't be testing people before giving them a vaccine or even asking. We would just say, everybody get the vaccine. And as Dr. Hurt was mentioning, as far as that there are data to suggest that one of the things about these vaccines, both the AstraZeneca and Janssen and the Pfizer and Moderna vaccine, they're stimulating both a B and a T cell response, which is important because that gives us more long-term immunity, that these are stimulating a very good T-cell response, which if we can extrapolate from other data where we've seen this kind of T-cell response, as Dr. Hurt was mentioning, the efficacy of the vaccine, the vaccine being effective may be as long as three to five years. That would be really great if we could have something that far, that long. We won't know for a while, but that there are some data suggest it isn't just going to be a few months and that uh, it doesn't work anymore. Yeah, I did just want to add that the research will continue. Even though the vaccine is rolling out, they'll be monitoring folks for adverse reactions. When people receive their vaccine, they will get a card to remind them of their second dose when they need to return, and also the option to opt into the program where they can be texted regarding their second dose and also the ability to report any adverse reactions. And so the research in general with all of these companies that are producing these vaccines will continue on. And as we learn more, we can tweak more. We may know more about whether a booster is required, whether certain people shouldn't take it, whether more people that maybe we're thinking now shouldn't will be able to take it. So it, it will continue on. A lot of people did, in fact, ask us, what is the vaccine itself? Is it a live virus or is it something different? Because a lot of people don't understand, are afraid to take it because they might get it from the vaccine. Is that true? I mean, I can give you a start and then maybe... Dr. Hurt and Dr. Neem uh, fill in. Is that, so there's three main platforms that we're using for vaccines right now. The first one is an mRNA platform. The second one is an adenovirus vectored platform. And the third one is uh, a protein subunit. So mRNA is messenger RNA. And mRNA is what we have in our own body. We use as far as that that's how we 
tell our body to make a protein. And the mRNA, we have these chemicals in our body called RNases that chew up the mRNA. And because we don't want mRNA around in our body for a long time, we want it to do its job and be gone. These mRNA vaccines, they are the mRNA is in our cell for about a couple days, and then the RNases chew it up. The RNAs do not get into the nucleus where the DNA is. The RNAs do not get into our genome. Our, the RNA does not change our genome. For the adenoviral vector, what they've done, mRNA is for the spike protein. And if you see these cartoons of the viruses, that they have these little pro, uh, protrusions on the outside of the virus, that's the spike. And the spike is what um, attaches to our respiratory, our lungs. Um, and that, so if we block that spike, then our lungs um, can't uh, be infected by the, the virus. That's the, the, what we're looking at. Both the adenoviral vector and the mRNA vaccines are based on having the spike protein gene get into our cell. And then our cell makes the spike protein and puts the spike protein on the surface of our cells and that stimulates our immune response because our body sees that protein on the surface of our cells as foreign and says, now we need to go to fight. We need to go make our immune response to go get rid of that um, protein. And that's what would happen if we had natural COVID is that the same thing is our body puts that protein on the surface of the cell and our body then fights the infection off so that a vaccine really is simulating an infection. It's making our body think we've been infected when we really haven't, but we still have that immune response to be able to fight off the infection. Now, one of the things then about the adenovirus is this adenovirus that they're using has been made so that once it goes into our cells, it cannot replicate, it can't grow, and it also cannot get into our DNA. There are some adenoviruses that uh, like bone marrow transplant doctors use that is a little bit different that they're using those on purpose to be able to integrate to get into our DNA because we want a gene to be there forever. So like people with sickle cell disease, that's we're now using a gene transfer for sickle cell disease and using adenovirus to be able to get that into the into our DNA. These vaccines will not change your DNA. They do not incorporate in the DNA. They do not last. All of them, what they're doing is to try those four that I was telling you is just to bring that spike protein gene into our cell and then our cell takes over after that. I'd like to just remind everyone who's watching uh, that this is a Dayton Daily News community conversation on what you need to know about the coronavirus vaccine. I'm Dayton Daily News Editor Jim Bevin, Community Impact Editor Amelia Robinson, Reporter Jordan Laird, and we are speaking with Vicki Nisley-Henry of Miami County Public Health, Dr. Robert Frank of Cincinnati Children's Hospital, Dr. Thomas Hurt of Primed Centerville, Dr. Mamli Anim, Chief Medical Officer for Five Rivers Health Centers, and Cheryl Harris-Wynn of Green County Public health. I'm wondering if someone can talk to this question of children, if children should take the vaccine and how has it been tested on children? I know the vaccines are different as far as how they've been tested so far, but if you can explain that a little bit, there were several readers who were interested in that topic. Right now, the emergency use authorization for the Pfizer vaccine extended down to age 16, but it hasn't been extended below age 16 yet. So we're just actually now starting to do some of the research on kids to look at the effectiveness, safety, and the correct dosing. We always say kids are not just little adults, so you can't just tweak it a tiny bit. You gotta figure out exactly what works. So the Pfizer study is recruiting kids now or down to age 12, I believe. But yeah, that is something that, I don't wanna say it's slowing things down, but they said, hey, as most people probably know, it seems like in general, kids don't get as sick from from the COVID. And so adults get sicker. So the priority was to develop the vaccine for grown-ups for adults first, 
and then circle back once we determine safety and test it on, on kids. So that's ongoing right now. Hopefully we'll have answers soon-ish, but it's going to be probably a few months before we know enough. Now, does the whole idea of herd immunity involve children? Stacey Butler asked if it does, because 70% would be herd immunity. Does that 70% include uh, children? Yes. It, it does. Yes. To go add on to what Dr. Hurt was saying is that while kids are not as frequently getting sick as sick as adults, it's not zero. That we've had over 150 children in the United States that have died from COVID. These are perfectly normal, healthy kids before they got COVID. And we've had thousands of children that have been hospitalized, and some are now getting this serious complication called MISC, which is kind of like a disorder that's called Kawasaki's, which is that our immune system has gone in overdrive. We've had over 1.5 million children infected with COVID. Last week, the percentage of infections in children basically was equivalent in the percentage of infections in adults. And one of the things I think that's happened initially is that if a mom or dad has a kid at home that has a little bit of a cough, a little bit of runny nose, they're not going to bring that person to the doctor. They're going to say, ah, they got a cold and that's it. Well, unfortunately, that cold may be COVID. They don't realize it. I've been doing pediatrics for 40 years. If COVID isn't passed by a child to another adult, that will be the first virus that I've seen that the kids haven't been happy to share with all of us. I was in the Navy, and every time we changed duty stations for that first six months to a year, I was sick always because I was getting all the new viruses that were in the community. So uh, I'm quite confident that uh, COVID also is one that the kids are, are quite able to pass to the rest of us. Now, there was a study recently that said that 70% of people said they will take the, the COVID-19 vaccine, which means 30% said they won't. And this is up from in September when 50% said they wouldn't take the vaccine, but it's still not where we probably want to be. Are there efforts going on right now to encourage folks to take the vaccine and what can be done to sort of build more confidence in the, the safety of the vaccine? I think, you know, this is the time that providers, physicians, nurse practitioners, nurses, people in the healthcare, this is the industry, this is the time that we need to start talking to people about it, normalizing that conversation about the COVID-19 vaccine and answering questions and trying to clear up misconceptions because there are a lot of misconceptions out there. So making it a routine part of the conversation with patients as we see them now, even before it's time to offer it so that you can answer their questions and people can actually get information from people they trust. Because, you know, right now you're getting it from so many sources, the internet, and you don't necessarily trust the people you're hearing it from. But typically people do trust their healthcare provider, the nurses that they see over and over again. So I think this is the time for us to start having these conversations about the vaccine is coming, you are a good candidate, you need it, what are your questions about it? Would you take it? And I have been incorporating these questions and I'm getting a lot of people who are saying no and I'm saying why and they give me their reasons and I rebut it. Again, they may not change their mind that day, but they hear me and then we'll talk about it again when it comes. And then I think when we do have it available, we in healthcare really need to make a concerted effort to reach out. We shouldn't expect people to come. I'm hoping that we won't have that problem, but I think we need to reach out to say, vaccine is here, it's safe, we want to give you the vaccine, instead of assuming that, because I think those who want it, want it, but we need to work on those who have reservations to kind of answer the questions. I think we need to answer their questions and help to 
get them to understand and maybe the answer might still be no but we need to make that effort and continue to make it are you guys seeing reluctance in your counties from folks wanting to take the vaccine and how are you working through those things i think if we weren't we would be the only ones i think everyone is seeing some reluctance you know at least some and from our perspective education is key as was mentioned people are getting information from so many different outlets and the misinformation is outstanding. We have to kind of try to stay ahead of that and, and make sure that communities are getting good, solid, accurate information. That's that's a, an undertaking for all of us. I think we're all trying to do that every opportunity we can. So just like what we're doing tonight, it's what we need to be doing this. I just want to echo what Vicki said. This is an excellent way to reach out to the community and give them an opportunity to ask their questions we're using our social media platforms and accepting calls, posting information on our website, and trying to reach out to people in as many ways as possible. I think we have people in different camps and their opinions are changing over time. As the actual vaccine is starting to roll out, I think the whole process has been uh, very transparent. If you really want to know, the information is out there. You can see the slides that have been shown in the meetings of the ACIP. The processes, the entire process is very transparent. So we are just working really hard to just get accurate information out to people. And as they're seeing the actual vaccine come forth and seeing uh, healthcare providers around the nation right now that are receiving it and start to get the account of people who have had it. Maybe some of those fears will begin to fall to the wayside. And folks, some folks are just want to wait and see what happens to the next person. Do they grow a horn out of the middle of their forehead, grow an additional appendage or whatever? And as they begin to see that people are still standing and moving forward with their lives after having had the vaccine, I think we'll see more people come on over and get that shot when it's available for them. Two groups have kind of stood out for concern, and one is African-American folks, and another one is people who live in rural communities as people who are reluctant to take the vaccine. Are there certain things that are being done to address those two groups of people? I know that there's a history of destruction of like uh, the medical establishment and African-Americans because of the history of different things that have happened, such as, you know, surgical experiments and the, to see the syphilis study and all sorts of other things. Are there things that are being done in this community to address those two populations? I don't know if we have a concerted community effort, and if anybody else knows of that, we should can talk about it. I know that being more done in a, in an on an individual scale, though there's a few of us, it's a um, it's just a small group that have come to, together. It's a West Dayton Health Coalition, and um, I'm, I'm on that group. And I think this is one of the things we're going to put on our agenda to talk about, to see how can we in the healthcare industry, some of us minorities, some of us not, how do we come up with a structured effort to educate our African-American community on this vaccine and how safe it is and how important it is to actually take this vaccination since we are at higher risk for bad outcomes when we do get it. Um, I think it is something that we can't just sort of hope happens. We ha it has to be very intentional to talk about it and have representation at the table 
people who are, are trusted in the community talking about this because it's really, really important. I know a lot of people don't want to take the flu vaccine. This is so much better than the flu vaccine. Um, I mean, the flu is bad and it's dangerous and it has a high mortality, but this is blown flu out of the water. And so really we want to make sure we, we give this vaccine the respect that it deserves because it really, really can make a difference. And we don't want to deny ourselves that advantage. Sounds like we're all learning and you, the medical world is learning as this goes out, as this rollout happens. There's so much to learn. When it was first introduced in the UK, there was a, a couple of weeks ago now only, there were some early reports of some, some folks with allergic reactions, some mild allergic reactions from what I read. If you have an allergy of any kind, is it simply something to bring to the attention of the healthcare provider you're getting the shot from and have the conversation? Or what do people with allergies need to know? This study that as far as in the Pfizer trial in the United States, I'm not aware of anyone having this similar kind of adverse event. So my first thought is this is a chance uh, occurrence, is that a lot of it, it's very similar to the transverse myelitis, the, uh, neuro- the rare neurological complication that happened in two people that had the AstraZeneca vaccine. If you have a lot of people, you're going to have s- things that happen. You know, if you have 40,000 people, you're going to have somebody in there that's going to have a heart attack. Just of 40,000 people, you know somebody's going to have a heart attack or somebody's going to have a stroke just because it was going to happen. One of the things we do is we watch very carefully um, to be checking on safety. But at this point, I would say that those are more likely than not uh, random events and that uh, I, I don't think that there would be strong enough evidence to say that somebody with uh, an allergy, I, I don't even sure what they'd be an allergy to. Too, um, because it's mRNA, which is what's in us. Um, so that uh, I think that I think at this point where I can't prove it, but I think very strongly that it's uh, probably was a chance occurrence. And I, and I don't, it really is going to change how we're going to be administering vaccines. Are there any common pre-existing conditions, people with diabetes or any other conditions that should do anything other than what you've just been describing? Are there any group that should be just have more of a conversation with the vaccine provider? I don't think there's any specific group that should have a particular worry. Certainly there's some concern about the folks with allergies. And again, that may be borne out as we get more data. Again, there shouldn't be any issue with a food allergy, peanuts, egg, whatever. It should not be a problem. Perhaps people that have had a significant reaction to a prior vaccination that we can definitively say was that, that may be something. But I don't think there are any particular illnesses, diabetes or asthma or anything that would prevent someone from getting the the COVID vaccination? The only issue is I have seen in the literature is if people who have a a depressed immune system, so it's not that they should not get the vaccine, it's that that their immune response may not be as active as it it should be. So maybe they may not get to the 95% protection and it may be lower, but it's not definitely a contraindication because again, this is not a live virus, so they're not going to get the illness. But I think to follow up with Dr. Anim said is that this is again why it's so critical is that we have everybody that can get the vaccine, get the vaccine so that the few people that can't, we can protect them. We can have everybody around them protected by getting the vaccine. Even if there were a few people that for medical reasons or whatever couldn't get the vaccine, if we can everybody else get it, those people be protected too. As Vicki mentioned earlier, there's a lot of misinformation about there about these two vaccines. And one question came from a reader about women in reproduction of health. Roger Scott wants to know, will the vaccines impact fertility in men and women short-term or long-term? No. 
<laughs> Case closed. Right? There, really, there is no information on that. This is completely false, and it this is it's not an issue. I printed out the the ACOG American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology guidelines before that because I figured that might come up. And they pretty specifically say no. And just to dovetail on that, while it hasn't necessarily been specifically studied on pregnant individuals, this is, this is from their website as of yesterday, they recommend vaccines not be withheld from pregnant individuals who meet criteria for vaccination. So we don't know for sure that it's completely safe for pregnant women, but they're saying, yeah, go ahead and give it. And there is no evidence that it affects fertility and sort of mechanically or whatever, there's really no reason why it would or should just the way the vaccine works. It shouldn't. And there's no evidence that it does. Are you guys generally concerned that the sort of anti-vaxxer movement will affect people's thoughts on this at all? Or is that something that's been overblown? Well, one of the things that we've seen is that an unanticipated consequence of COVID is the decrease in general uh, vaccines is that uh, um, parents haven't been bringing their kids into the health department or the doctors, whatever, as much as they had before. And so that we're having drops in immunization rates. And that is just because people have been nervous about congregating. And that is going to be a problem. It's not going to be if we're going to have an outbreak, it's when we're going to have an outbreak and which thing we're going to have an outbreak or outbreaks. And so I am concerned about that we have to get our vaccine rates back up. I mean, they're not horribly dropped, but we have definitely seen a drop. It was worse in the spring and it's now starting to get back up toward normal. I think my attack, my take on the things is that we have to pro- provide factual information and we have to be willing to engage in conversations to explain things to people. And so, Amelia, what you're doing tonight is so critical so that the people in the community can understand about these vaccines and about why it's important to get vaccines and vaccines in general. Because it's very easy to put a digital image up of scaring people. And it takes a long time to try to explain the science and that and trying to do it so that not putting people to sleep as you're, as you're telling that to them. So it is important to have these conversations. And I do have worry. But the good thing is, is that the vast majority of parents still are immunizing their children, fully immunizing their children, and that uh, we've had as high immunization rate now previous to COVID where that has been a little blip than we've ever had. So while there's been a lot of noise about avoiding vaccines, when you look at the vaccine rates, they're still quite good throughout the United States. Dr. Hurt, you chuckled a little bit when I said that. Was there something you wanted to add? (laughs) Uh, That's funny. No, vaccines are the most cost-effective development in the history of medicine. We've saved more costs, more lives. It's it's the most effective thing in in healthcare, in medicine. I, I chuckle when I when I hear about the anti-vax movement, because I, I feel badly that people are uninformed or misinformed, because I think it's pretty normal to be scared of something you don't know, scared of something new. We talked about how can we get more people to, to get the vaccine? Hey, it's, it's a new thing. That's, there's no getting around it. It's a new thing. We just have to have confidence in the system that it's a safe and effective vaccine that's, that's there to save lives and, and all that. So I chuckle because I, I have a hard time understanding people being anti-vaccine. By the same token, certainly nothing, I think I might have said this before, nothing's 100% safe. Driving your car down the street's not 100% fake, safe, but there's things that we do to make it safer. Vaccines are safe and they are effective. They save lives. Will there be any pros and cons to taking this Pfizer vaccine as opposed to like the Moldovic vaccine or any other ones that are coming down the line that you guys have heard about? One reader asked earlier about that. 
You mean specifically one, one vaccine over the other? Yeah, like is there a difference between the different vaccines or are they all pretty much working the same to do the same thing, which is prevent COVID? <laughs> Can I ask about so, so no, no, that's good. That's what they are going to do. They're all going to prevent COVID. Um, so that I would, like I mentioned before, I would think of this as three different kind of platforms. The one is the mRNA platform. The other one is the adenoviral vaccine platform. And the third is the uh, protein subunit platform. So um, in the end, all of the vaccines, what they're trying to do is to get our body to make an antibody against the spike protein. It's using a little bit of different mechanisms to get our body to make those immune responses. But in the end, as you're saying, Amelia, it's to get us to um, be immune to COVID and it's to do that by having an antibody against that spike protein. And again, that spike protein is the part of how the virus attaches to our cells and how it infects our cells. Along the lines of the same question that Jim asked earlier, Connie, who was on Facebook, asked if you're immunocompromised, should you take the vaccine? Yes. <laughs> yes. And, and I think I, we talked about it a little bit. You may not have the full benefit. You get some benefit. It may not be the full 95%, you know, but you will get some benefit. It's, it's not dangerous. So it's actually in your situation, being immunocompromised already, you really want to protect yourself to as much as you can. I mean, there are, Amelia, some vaccines we use in children, like the measles, mumps, rubella vaccine, is that those are live viruses that they replicate in our system, they grow in our body. We would not give those to somebody that has uh, immune compromising conditions. But the mRNA vaccine in the first place, there's no virus or anything with it. And the adenovirus is one where it can't grow in us, so that I would not be concerned about that. And as Dr. Anim said, is that the I think the worst that would happen is that you just don't get as good of immune response, not that you're at increased risk of getting sick from the vaccine, I mean. From what you all know about the, the, we've talked a lot about what's coming up in the next couple of weeks, couple of months, expected mass manufacturing, billions of doses. As 2021 rolls out, based on what you know about how much people are going to adopt this, is there a point of the year that you would point to as saying, this is the point at which I'm gonna, I personally am going to feel comfortable going out into a crowd without a mask? There's so many variables that it's hard. It depends on how many people decide to get immunized, how much uh, doses we get, how bad this gets. And so there's just so many variables that I think it's going to be one of those things. You know it when you see it, but you can't tell when it's coming because there's just going to be a lot of factors that have to kind of all line up for us to get to that point. I can't predict, I, you know, this pandemic has taught me to shut up. You can't predict anything, so many things you thought, and then it was like, oh, no, it's even worse. Or, you know, so you just kind of have to wait, I think, personally. I'll take a stab and say, by this going back to school year next year, and that uh, maybe a little bit earlier than that, that I think that quite sufficient amount of vaccine available. And then it'll go back to what Dr. Neem was saying and Dr. Hurt as far as that encouraging people to get the vaccine. Because the biggest tragedy that we would have lots and lots of doses of very effective vaccines and then people not getting it. That would be the problem. Jordan, I think you had a follow-up question about side effects, right, that you wanted to pose. Can somebody talk about the side effects of the vaccine? Because I've gotten a lot of comments from readers about these side effects sound really bad. They sound worse than getting the virus. Can you talk about that? Sure. I'll, I'll yeah, talk. Dr. Hurt. That's fine. Yeah, so... Um, 
it sounds like it's going to be fairly typical with uh, most other vaccines that we're seeing too. So, you know, I don't want to minimize things because you may get a low grade fever. You may have significant fatigue and not feel like getting out of bed for a day or so. Uh, you may have a headache, body aches, muscle aches, and those aren't, aren't nothing, but they're a heck of a lot better than being short of breath, losing your sense of taste or smell for a month, being in the hospital on oxygen. I half jokingly said earlier, you know, if and when you have some side effects, you know that it's working. That's how you know your immune system is ramping up and responding. Not to minimize the side effects, but the biggest thing I guess you could say about that is they're what we call self-limited, which means they go away usually within a day or two or maybe three. That's the biggest difference. You know, a side effect from a vaccine might last a couple of days, probably fairly mild versus illness that can last for a long time. I think the closest uh, side effect that I've seen compared to is the shingles vaccine, which is a little bit of a rougher vaccine to get in that that immune response is very strong and you get the muscle aches and the fever. And I, mean, I had it personally, it knocked me out for a day and then I was fine. So again, those symptoms are established side effects for most vaccines. It's not because it's the COVID vaccine and that is not going to put your life at risk and the disease definitely does. So it's sort of not apples and oranges. They're very, very different. And it's a lot safer to take the vaccine than to try to get the disease. So, but Jordan, if you're asking as far as what we've seen in clinical trials so far is that the most common adverse event we see, so a lot of people get nothing. But if they're going to get it, the most common thing is we're seeing is people getting headache and fatigue. Um, and as Dr. Neiman says, that, that the fatigue can be a day or two. And so I have one colleague who is, has a tremendous amount of energy, and she said, I just needed to go home and take a nap. I mean, you know, that's that she said how she felt after she got it. As Dr. Hurt was mentioning, is that we kind of said, well, we know what you got uh, versus we know you didn't get the placebo. And that's so that uh, the way we grade side effects, we grade them as grade one, two, and three. So one is that you can feel them, but they really don't change your daily activity. You may have a little bit of headache, but okay, I can push on. I can do okay. Grade two is where you're feeling some change is that I can go to work, but I really don't feel like it. And I'm not as, as productive as I usually am. And then grade three is that you're in bed. Um, you really can't go to work. So on grade three, only 2% of people have had a grade three, and even those have lasted for a day, and those have been fatigue and headache. Most of them have been grade one, and, and so that you've had those uh, symptoms, the fatigue, the headache, the muscle aches, the joint aches, sometimes a fever chill for a day or two. The highest fever I've seen anybody have is 102. I mean, now for a, a kid, when they get 102, they don't care. They're running around. They're fine. Adults don't like 102 temperature. They're, they don't feel good. Again, it's a day or so and that uh, some Tylenol their motions made it feel better. I think one of the things that's really important, Jordan and Amelia, is that what we don't do is under-report what we're having or under-represent what the adverse events could be because then we can lose credibility as far as if we tell people that, okay, you may be feeling kind of rough for a day or so, and then it happens and say, oh, okay, that wasn't that bad. If we tell them that nothing's going to happen and then they feel kind of rough or they're, they're having the aches and pains and that, they're going to say that doctor lied to me. And that's not what we need at all. So the things that Dr. Hurt and Dr. Anim were saying is exactly right as far as that they are, the back side effects we've been seeing have been really pretty mild. Um, but some people have had these for a day or two and have not felt good and have taken some Motrin or Tylenol. But when you compare to what could happen as far as getting the disease, the benefit of the vaccine so far outweighs the risk. And the, the benefit of the vaccine versus the risk of getting COVID is tremendously in the favor of the vaccine. 
And Dr. Frank, correct me if I'm wrong, if in my reading, the second dose, you might even have a, a bigger response, side effect response with the second and, dose. And one of the things that's interesting is for the Moderna and the Pfizer vaccine, there have been more people that had a reaction with the second dose than the first, whereas AstraZeneca, more people, if they're going to have an adverse event, it happened with the first dose versus the second. The other thing that we've seen is that younger people, so... Um, as I'm now falling into the not younger person group anymore, as far as that younger people is 55 and below have actually had more adverse events, complaints at least, as people that are 55 and above. Now, I just took it as far as I get up in the morning and this hurts or that hurts, so I don't even think about it as far as being an adverse event, you know, and so we don't bother reporting it. If you look at the data, it really, there are differences by age. Uh, gender doesn't seem to have any difference. Race didn't seem to have any difference. But dosing, as Dr. Neem was saying, the first dose for AstraZeneca was more than the second dose for AstraZeneca, but the first dose was less for um, Pfizer and Moderna than the second dose. We're like slightly <laughs> over time, but I wanted to really quickly, can you give me a, an appeal? Can you make the case so that people feel confident that they should take this vaccine once it's available to them? Dr. Hurt, you want to jump in? Jump I'll in? go first, sure. This is uh, probably the best thing that I can say. You know, um, I would have lined up and gotten my vaccine today if I could have. If I would have been eligible to enter the, the vaccine trial, I would have entered the vaccine trial. Potential conflict of interest for me, so not able yeah. to enter. But if I can get the vaccine tomorrow, I'm going to get it. I'd, I'd like to get it tomorrow. I, would, I wish I could have gotten it this afternoon. And that I would echo that 100% is that my children who are adults, but they're saying, Dad, when can we get this vaccine? And my wife is saying, when can we get the vaccine? That people can feel comfortable with this, that they're going to be able to get back to normal. This is the way we're going to get back to normal the fastest. Does anybody else want to make a case? Doctor? Yeah, I think one of the biggest reasons to take the vaccine is to save your life and to save other people's yeah. lives. I mean, really, I know a lot of people are like, well, if I take it, I still can't do whatever I want. But really, the, the thing is that you're going to save your life and you're going to save the lives of others. And I'll just add that the standards for the vaccine trials have been rigorous, the same as they would be for any other vaccine that's been developed. And now that it has been put forth, when your turn comes, whatever vaccine is available, whichever product is available at that time, I would encourage people to go ahead and take it. It is our way forward. It is our way back to some normal semblance of life where we can see each other's faces and smiles again. And it's going to take some time. And But take the time to educate yourself. The information is out there. It's available. Go to your trusted sources for information. The local public health departments. We've been vaccinating people for decades and uh, it is part of our business and we are happy to share information and answer any questions that people have. And we appreciate the opportunity to come on here tonight and talk about this important topic. Vicki, you're the last one. You want to say anything? Sure. No, just kind of reiterate what everybody said. This is the point that we've all been waiting for since last March. <laughs> so it's here and now is our opportunity to take advantage of all of the efforts that all of the experts have put in. And this is what we've been waiting for. So it's, it's time to, to take advantage of it. Well, thank you all so much for sharing your expertise with our readers and viewers. Um, I'm Amelia Robinson, the Community Impact Editor for the Dayton Daily News. I was joined by Jim Babington, 
in Jordan Laird from the Dayton Daily News. This is part of our continuing series of community conversations sponsored by the Dayton Daily News. If you want to help us continue these important dialogues, you can support local journalists with a subscription to the Dayton Daily News. Please consider visiting subscribe.daytondailynews.com. You guys have a wonderful night and please be safe out there. The vaccine is available now to some people, but not to all of us. And the coronavirus is still very much a threat. Thank you so very much for listening to this very special episode of the What Happened Was podcast. I will be hosting a follow-up community conversation on the virus and the vaccines designed to stop it in January. Please email me your questions at a robinson at daytondailynews.com. The What Happened Was podcast is written, edited, and produced by me, Amelia Robinson. The show's artwork is by my bestie, Troy Liming of TL Creates of Columbus. Until next time, stay masked up and at least six feet from people who do not live in your household. Be safe, everybody.